Um, so he's, looks like he might even have a prop, guys. So something to look forward to. Don't want to give that one away. Um, but I would love to welcome Ben. I love having him and uh, other elders and people in our community lead. I uh, love sitting under, under their teaching. And so, Ben, appreciate you, bud. But thank you very much. Right. I like that Christmas sweater. Thanks, man. I felt comfortable wearing it today because I'm not preaching. felt like it just fit. So <laughs> here we go. Very nice. Good morning, everybody. Good to be here with you today on the first Sunday of Advent. Excited to dig into um, the first chapter of Luke a little bit today. Um, and I hope everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We're in full-on Christmas mode in our house. We've got the music going. We've got the lights outside. We've got the tree up. Um, even the ornaments that are made like 30 years ago that we're trying not to break that are super fragile. You know, we've got everything set up and it's, it's super exciting. So it's a really fun time. Um, and today we're going to be looking at the Song of Mary in Luke chapter 1, known as the Magnificat from the Latin translation of the first few words of the song that say, my soul magnifies the Lord. Um, so if you want to turn there, Luke chapter 1, and let me pray for us as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season to remember um, your grace and mercy, Lord, that you came as our Savior. Lord, and I pray that you would just open our eyes today to see what's in your word for us. Lord, that you would help us to hear the voice of our Savior, Lord, calling us by name and speaking to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read this in just a minute, but first, I want to just think about, you know, the context in which this was spoken, the Song of Mary. Um, you know, just think about this context. If you picture this, you know, you're a teenage girl living in first century Israel, which is currently ruled by the Roman Empire. Um, so you've grown up under oppression. And all your life, you've heard the stories of what God has done for your people. Uh, you know, every year your family celebrates Passover, and you remember, you know, the lamb that was sacrificed and the blood on the doorpost and how God um, spared his people. And then you remember the deliverance through the Red Sea. And you know, all your life, you've grown up hearing these stories. Um, and you've heard that one day the Messiah will come um, and make everything better. But you look around you and, you know, all you see is the brokenness of the world. You know, you see sickness and disease and sin and death and brokenness and sadness and sorrow and injustice. And you believe the promises you've heard in the scriptures and you want to learn more. But, you know, the current religious leaders in your day aren't much help. You know, they seem to be more concerned with enforcing all these minute rules than really teaching you about God. And you wrestle with all of this. You know, when will the Messiah come? You know, what about all these promises in Scripture? And then one day, you're alone in your house, and all of a sudden, this bright light bursts forth into the room. And standing in front of you is the most amazing, brilliant, glorious figure you've ever seen. And you're a little scared, but he tells you not to be afraid and says you've found favor with God and tells you you're going to have a son and call him Jesus. And he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will have no end, and your heart just leaps for joy as it suddenly dawns on you like, it is true. The Messiah really is coming. The promises 
you know, from centuries past, really will be fulfilled. And it's happening in our day right now. Um, you know, he will save us. And on top of it all, he's chosen me to bring forth the Messiah. And it's almost too much to take in. And then he tells you that your cousin Elizabeth is going to have a son as well. And you quickly pack up and head off on a journey, probably a few days' journey to her house with your, you know, your head spinning and your heart pounding. And as you make this journey and ponder all of these things, this song starts to well up in your soul, in your heart. And when you arrive, you know, Elizabeth immediately greets you with this blessing. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And somehow she knows it all as well. And then you just burst out with this song. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So that's the Song of Mary, and there's a lot here. We're not going to cover everything in detail, and actually we're just going to zero in on a couple of key phrases in this song. But, you know, when you step back and look at this song, it reads almost like a psalm, right? It's, it's the words of Mary, but words that could be found on the lips of any of God's children. Um, it reminds us, you know, for those of you who've been in the men's and women's Bible studies this past semester, digging into 1 Samuel, you may see echoes here, reminders of the Song of Hannah, uh, when she was promised a son as well. And yet, it's also quite different from that song. Um, there are also echoes of the Beatitudes, as it talks about um, you know, the humble being blessed and the hungry being filled. Um, so there's a lot going on here. And ultimately, answers the question, what is God like? What kind of God do we serve? And it answers that by telling us what he does. And today, I want to focus on two statements that, to me, sum up the whole song. So the song opens with this declaration of praise. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. But the question is, why? Why does her soul magnify the Lord? Why does her spirit rejoice in God her Savior? And the first words out of her mouth are this. For he has looked. Mary's soul magnifies the Lord because he sees. <clears throat> he sees her in her humble estate. And simply knowing that God sees her is, is reason enough for rejoicing. Um, I mean, just think about it. Here she is, an obscure girl in an overlooked town in a time of history that seems forgotten by God. You know, there's not much happening. The, there are no prophets speaking, um, no signs of the Messiah coming. And all of a sudden, you know, he chooses her to bring forth the Savior. And she's probably processing this on so many different levels. It's like, okay, the Messiah is coming in our day. Like of all the times in history that he could have come, he chose now. And, and he's coming to our random little town. Um, on, and on top of that, God chose me to bring forth the Messiah. And the first words of praise that she utters are this. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. In other words, he sees me. And interestingly, Elizabeth describes God's remarkable work in her life in the same way. A few verses earlier, in, in verse, uh, verse 25, it says, Thus the Lord has done for me, for Elizabeth, 
in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among people. So he saw Mary, and he saw Elizabeth, and he sees you. Um, And when we simply remember that God sees us, it really can have a dramatic impact on our lives. And this whole concept of God being the God who sees me goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, actually, in Genesis chapter 16. And you know the story of Abraham and Sarah waiting for the promise, you know, that they were going to have a child and that, you know, through their offspring, God would bring blessing to all the nations. And yet, it's not happening. And they're looking at their watches like, when is this going to happen? And Sarah has this idea of, hey, here's another way we can make this happen. And then her maidservant, Hagar, gets pregnant. And then Sarah's, you know, not super happy after all of that and kind of treats her with disdain. And so Hagar flees into the desert and finds herself in the wilderness by a spring of water, um, completely hopeless. And the angel of the Lord shows up and gives her this promise about the son and this, this prophecy about what he's going to be like and tells her to go home. And at the end of that whole episode, um, in Genesis 16, 13, it says this, and she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And this became one of the names of God in the Old Testament, El Roy, the God who sees me. And when you know him as the God who sees, it changes everything. Um, I had this experience nearly a decade ago when this truth really hit home for me of God being the God who sees us. Um, we had just, you know, been, we had just given birth, we, I say we, my wife had just given birth to our firstborn son. Um, and, uh, right after that, the doctors discovered, you know, some difficulty with some numbers to do with his blood sugar that weren't quite coming back right. And so he went straight from birth into the neonative neonatal intensive care unit. That's a mouthful. That's why they shortened it to the NICU. Um, and we spent about a week there and you know, visiting him every day and, you know, tears being shed and all kinds of uncertainty about, you know, what's going to happen? Is this going to affect him the rest of his life? Um, a very heavy time and, you know, waiting for the numbers to change and hoping for some good news from the doctors and just not knowing, you know, what's going to happen. And one day I went downstairs to the first floor of this hospital to the little mini Chick-fil-A. Have you ever been to one of those mini Chick-fil-A's that, you know, doesn't have a full menu, it has like chips instead of fries, which is really disappointing, but you roll with it anyway because it's there. And um, went to grab lunch or maybe it was dinner, I don't remember. When you're in the hospital, you always just lose track of time. And uh, arrived back in our room with the, the Chick-fil-A and we noticed, let's see if I can grab this here, that on the cup, the Chick-fil-A cup, was written this Bible verse. And uh, I have the actual cup here today. And when we saw the verse written on this cup, it really just took our breath away. Um, And I went rushing back downstairs to the first floor to that Chick-fil-A and asked the lady who had processed the order and said, do you have any idea that our son is in the NICU right now? Because, I mean, for all she knows, we could have just given birth and been heading home that day. And she shakes her head, no, no idea. And I said, do you have any idea that his name is James? And she smiles and shakes her head. And the verse that she'd written on the cup was James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It says, count all joy when you fall into various trials, 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And all of a sudden, I just felt, you know, as I'm walking down the hallway and heading back up the elevator, I just felt this overwhelming sense of relief and peace. And it wasn't because of a, a change in the diagnosis or a change in the numbers or any news from the doctors or anything. It was just because all of a sudden I knew that God sees me. And that's why we've kept this cut for 10 years, nine years. Um, a reminder that, you know, God is the God who sees us. So Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. When you know that he sees you, it changes everything. And we see this theme of God being the God who sees in all kinds of other places throughout Scripture. Um, In the beginning of Exodus, when the children of Israel are enslaved and they cry out to God, it says that God saw the people of Israel and God knew you know, if he sees, it means he knows. He gets it. He knows what's going on. And, and this is what the incarnation of Christ shows us, that he sees and he knows. You know, because Jesus left heaven, came to earth as a man, he absolutely knows what it's like to be human, to live in the world under the curse, you know, a world filled with sickness and disease and death and sorrow and suffering. He sees and he knows. And Hebrews says that he's able to sympathize with our weakness. Um, so, we all have this strong desire to be seen. And it starts as soon as we're able to talk. Um, those of you that have kids, you know, know well the phrase, Mommy, look at me. Look at me. Watch this, Mommy. We even once had a, a moment where one of the kids said, Mommy, watch this. <sighs> wow, you're breathing. That's great. <laughs> you know? um, so we all have this strong desire to be seen. Um, and... It, it doesn't necessarily leave as we grow older. You know, why are our lives posted on social media? Because we want to be seen. Um, and when you're hurting or struggling, you know, what do you want most of all is you want to be seen. You know, doesn't anybody see what I'm going through? Um, some people do shocking things for attention or say so- shocking things for attention because they want to be seen. It's like, hey, you can scold me, reject me, make fun of me, whatever, get mad at me, but just please notice me. Um, And we all have this desire for someone to see our struggles and for someone to see our accomplishments and for someone to say, wow, great job, what you did there, or wow, I can't believe what you're going through. And we forget that God says, I see you. Um, And when you know that he sees you, you can relax. Maybe no one else will really appreciate what you just went through, but he sees you. And he sees it all, and that's how he's able to say, at the end, you know, well done, good and faithful servant, because he has seen absolutely every single thing that you've done. You know, every time you're tempted to kick the dog, but you don't, he sees it. Every time you put in you know, extra effort uh, to get a job done and you don't get any appreciation for it, he sees it. Uh, every time you sacrifice your time uh, to help someone else and they don't even realize how much of a sacrifice it was for you, your Heavenly Father sees it. And simply knowing that God sees brings such comfort. And this is you know, a big theme in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you know, you did it in, in secret, but your Father sees you. Um, you know, what, uh, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And you don't have to worry about what men see, because your loving Heavenly Father sees it all. Um, and this idea of being the God, who's, God being the God who sees also brings conviction. If you think about it, there may be some things you don't want him to see. You know, he sees the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you know, maybe you want to hide from his, 
his sight, like Adam and Eve sometimes, or flee from it like Jonah, but he sees. You know, nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight, is what Hebrews tells us. So let's remember today that we serve the God who sees. He saw Mary, he saw Elizabeth, and he sees you. But he, remember, he doesn't see you as you see yourself. You, know, you may see yourself as forgotten and overlooked, but he sees you as the apple of his eye. You may see yourself as unclean and unlovable, he sees you as washed and, and purified and fully loved. You may see yourself as rejected or cast aside. He sees you as welcomed in. You, know, you may see yourself as a total failure. He sees you as called and chosen to do great things for him. So Mary's soul magnifies the Lord because he sees. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and that alone is cause for rejoicing. But the song doesn't stop there. He doesn't just see, he also acts. And the second statement I want to look at is, this, that for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And it goes on to talk about all the things that God has done. Mary's soul magnifies the Lord because he acts. We do not serve a distant and passive and aloof and uninvolved God. We serve a God who acts. Um, he steps in. You know, he intervenes. He comes. And this is what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas, that God acts, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And this is what Mary is singing about when she says, God, my Savior. And she goes on to list all these things that God has done. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud of the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty. He's exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry. He has helped his servant Israel. Verb, 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 verb. We serve a God who does things, who acts. Um, and the question is, as you look through this, this list of all these things God does, you know, one of the questions that may come to mind is, what things is she referring to? Is this past tense? Is this future? Is, you know, is she rec recalling things God has done in the past, like in the Exodus where he brings down the mighty Pharaoh from his throne or delivers his people from Egypt? Is she remembering when God scatters the Philistines through a humble shepherd with a slingshot? You know, maybe. Those are certain ex examples of God's mighty acts in history. Or is she talking future about what God will do in the end of the age? when he restores all things. You know, maybe that could definitely fit the promises about the Messiah bringing justice. And it could be both. Yes, he's acted in, in history. Yes, he's acting now. And yes, he will act in the future. Um, Leon Morris, a well-respected Bible commentator, held this future view where he said, it's perhaps more likely that she's looking forward in a spirit of prophecy and counting what God will do as so certain that it can be spoken of as accomplished. It's already happened, and this is frequent in the Old Testament. So even though uh, the Messiah has come, there are some Messianic promises that are yet to be fulfilled, but God is at work. And we need to remember that we serve a God who acts. He doesn't just wind up the clock and let it run and see what happens, but he is actively involved in history, and he's actively involved in our lives. And this moment, the incarnation, represents you know, one of the most important, significant acts of God in all of history, that Jesus left his throne and humbled himself and came to earth. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And sometimes we forget that God actually does things. You know, maybe we pray, but we don't really expect any kind of response. Maybe we step out in faith to minister or serve somebody or do something, and we think it all depends on us, and we forget that we serve a God who acts. Um, Jesus demonstrated the activity of God in his ministry on earth. 
And we went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And John said at the end of his gospel, there are so many other things that Jesus did that if you were to write them all down, you'd run out of paper. He who is mighty has done great things for me. He does things. And then what happens after Jesus ascended? God still acts. The Holy Spirit comes and we get a whole book called Acts. Um, And then throughout church history, we see the activity of God. We see God at work. And the Song of Mary reminds us that we serve a God who acts. And what's the purpose of all this activity? It's to bring about the very first words in this psalm, in this song, that our souls will magnify the Lord and our spirits will rejoice in God our Savior, that he is glorified when we experience his work and it causes our souls to rejoice, um, that we enjoy him and glorify him forever. So yes, you know, some of the promises are still yet to come, not fully realized until Jesus returns, but even now he has shown strength with his arm, and delivered me from darkness. He has brought down the mighty forces that held me in captive to sin. And he has filled me with good things, blessings all mine, and 10,000 beside. My soul magnifies the Lord. And we forget all this so quickly. God does something amazing in our lives, an answer to prayer, a miraculous provision, maybe a special sense of his presence. And we rejoice, and our souls magnify him, but then maybe... You know, difficulty comes, trouble comes, whatever, and we forget and we begin to doubt. You know, does God really see me? Does He really act? Does he, is He at work in my life? And this happened to Jesus' earliest followers. At the very end of the book of Luke, you get this part where Jesus appears to His disciples after He's risen from the dead, and He says to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? I mean, they'd seen the miracles, they'd heard Jesus tell them that he's going to die on the cross, he's going to raise again to life, and yet here they are doubting the whole thing. Have you ever been there? You know, I certainly have. And Jesus' response to them is, see my hands and feet, you know, remember what I have done for you. He who is mighty has done great things for me. So today, let the Christmas story remind you that we serve a God who sees and that we serve a God who acts. And as we wrap up, I want to just look at one more piece of this story, one more piece of context to this song. So Mary wasn't the only one who had a visit from the angel Gabriel. Uh, You know the story well that Gabriel also showed up to this priest named Zechariah and announced to him that he would have a son named John the Baptist. And it's interesting to compare the two responses to the angelic visit. You know, Mary's response when Gabriel comes and then Zachariah's response. Because they both ask a question, which on the surface sounds kind of similar. It sounds like they're almost asking the same question. And then when you look at it closely, you realize it's a very different question coming from a very different um, state of heart and a different attitude. And, you know, they have dramatically different results. One is blessed, the other suffers in silence for nine months. So let's look quickly at Luke 1.18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, prove it. Give me a sign. Really? How shall I know this? It's like, um, hello, Zachary. Here you are in the temple of the Lord, burning incense. Everybody's outside praying. An angel of the Lord appears right in front of you before the altar of incense, gives you this prophecy that perfectly lines up with the last few words in the book of Malachi at the very end of the Old Testament, and you're asking for a sign. Um, And on top of that, Zachariah's a priest, and it describes him as a righteous one. He's a good priest at that. Um, 
He should be an example of faith, and yet he utterly fails. And he gets a sign, but probably not the sign he wanted. Mary also responds with a question. Um, in Luke 1.34, it says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? It's a similar sounding question, but a totally different attitude. She's not saying, How shall I know this? She's saying, How will this be? She's just asking for an explanation. She's not demanding a sign. Um, you know, how is this actually going to work? And Gabriel gladly obliges. But Zechariah, on the other hand, is asking for a sign when God has already given him more than enough proof. Are we not the same way? Um, you know, how do I know God loves me? How do I know he cares? Prove it, God. And it's okay to ask questions, but what's our attitude? Is it, do we come to him with doubts and demands like Zechariah? Or do we come to him with trust and surrender like Mary? And I'm afraid all too often my, my reaction is more like Zachariah's. And maybe you're hearing this today and you've never actually put your faith in Jesus. And the question for you today is, you know, what's your response to this good news of the Savior? Will you be like Mary and take him at his word? Or will you be like Zachariah and you know, demand another sign? You know, maybe you still have questions about how it all works, and that's fine. Mary did too. But she also took God at his word and put her trust in him. And that's what God is calling you to do today. Or maybe you've been a Christian for years, but your heart has started to question whether God really sees or acts. And maybe it's been a while since you've heard his voice or seen an answer to prayer. And maybe because of this, your heart has started to look a little bit more like Zachariah's than Mary's. And once again, it's okay to ask questions, but to ask in faith. Maybe he's calling you to repent of hardness of heart and to put your trust in God again, to take him at his word. So today, let's let Mary's song remind us that we serve a God who sees and who acts. And may we all respond with humble surrender and faith like Mary. Let's pray. Father, this is so convicting for me. Lord, help me and help all of us to have a heart like Mary. Help us to take you at your word. Lord, forgive us for when we have been more like Zechariah, maybe walking in righteousness, but slow to believe your word. Lord, you can make all things new, and I pray that you would renew our hearts today. Lord, that you would restore our souls, that you would renew our minds and our faith and our trust in you. Lord, that you would help us to trust you with our whole hearts. Lord, help us not to be unbelieving, but believing. And this Christmas season, Lord, May we look to Jesus, the Savior of the world, Lord, and put our faith and our trust in you anew. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to transition to communion. When, when Mary spoke of God, my Savior, she knew that people needed to be saved from their sins, and she knew that she needed to be saved from her sins. Little did she know at the time that this would be through the sacrifice of the promised Messiah, that the very one that she was carrying in her womb would later give his life for her and for all who fear him on the cross. And so, yeah, they're baskets at the end of the aisles if you haven't found them yet. And as you take the, the bread and the juice, we want to remember today that the God who sees and the God who acts didn't just act in coming to earth but also that Jesus went to the cross for our sins uh, 
that we might have life in his name. So let's take the bread and take the the wine and remember that this is the, the bread that represents the body of Jesus broken for us and that the wine represents his blood shed for us. And let's rejoice today with Mary and God, my Savior. Lord, we thank you for your body broken for us on the cross and for your blood shed. And I pray today, Lord, that you would cause our hearts to rejoice in you, just like Mary's heart rejoiced. God, my Savior, in Jesus' name.